Hello, everyone, and good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Red and Blue Realities, Political Discourse and the 2020 Election, which we're still in, I guess, election season, but we have two distinguished guests who will be talking to us today about the research that they've done. Um, and then we'll get into some questions. So please feel free to put questions in the Q&A uh, at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, first, we have Robert Ferris, and then we have Yochai Benkler, who worked in the with a team of researchers related to communication, media, elections, and uh, misinformation. And we're really happy to have them here today. So with that, I'll give it to Rob. Great, I'm Yochai Benkler. I'm a uh, uh, faculty here at Berkman. Uh, thanks, Jasmine, for being willing to lead us in this and, and, and comment and think together. Uh, let me just lay things out for a couple of minutes and then transfer it to Rob and then, and then uh, take it back. And let me uh, start with just a little bit of background. Um, after the 2016 uh, uh, election, we invested a lot of time in work on trying to understand in a large scale data analysis, what the shape of political communication in the United States uh, is. Uh, and we came out with several reports, but ultimately this book network propaganda. And at the highest level, the most powerful finding we had was that um, <clears throat> uh, the American political system was not polarized but asymmetrically polarized, that there was a tight insular right wing and a rest of the media ecosystem from the center right all the way to the left that was centered on professional media. That was the big finding. The second finding was in our work that it seemed like the Russians and Cambridge Analytica were less important and really that Fox News and the mainstream media played a much larger role than most conversation at the time gave them credit. As we moved the same team and expanded with somewhat new and expanded techniques for defining polarization, et cetera, we found a series of very similar stabilities. Asymmetric polarization continues in the same shape. If anything happened, the mainstream centrist sites grew in importance. And uh, uh, like the AP, USA Today, ABC, NBC, CBS, um, we saw some, and that's probably because the negative partisanship of people on the left was fed by the continuous fact-checking of the stream of lies coming from the White House. And uh, we saw some shift in specific outlets like the New York Post or Real Clear Politics that moved further to the right. And we saw this more extremely when we look at Twitter, uh, very similar to what we saw from 2015 to 2018 when we look at Facebook. Uh, and again, we developed here now a new measure that I'm happy, we're, we'll be happy to go into when we talk about it uh, 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 in Q&A. But basically the same structure, if you look at total engagement, you get one set of super big players. If you look at the range of, of pages that are sharing, uh, you get another. But the overall point is the structure is very similar. It's asymmetric and um, uh, major mainstream media continue to be important and Fox continues to be important. I think Rob now 
uh, will take it over and, and talk about a lot of what we saw about the actual strategies uh, and techniques. Super, thank you. Thank you so much, Yokai. I'm going to share my screen. Wonderful. So I'm going to uh, highlight um, some of the findings from two recent reports we have. Um, I want to say that this is a work of a, a great team. Uh, so all, all blame and credit should be shared with uh, Justin and Bruce and Jonas and Yokai and Hal and Carolyn and Casey, who did amazing work. Uh, if you want to try this at home, get these seven people in a few months and you'll be good to go. Um, so these, um, these two reports cover uh, January through May of this year. Um, the January period um, included the impeachment and its aftermath, the killing of Gen General Soleimani, and the beginning of the end of the Democratic primaries. By the middle of March, um, coverage of the pandemic had taken over political discourse in the United States. And that's what I'm going to focus on here. Um, so amongst the questions that we're trying to answer in this is how these media ecosystems operate, both kind of within these given media spheres and also between the two of them. So we'll talk about that. Um, an important place to start and an important thing to understand about this is that the vast amount of uh, reporting on politics in the United States is taking place in media sources in the center left and the center. So by large media sources such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, USA Today, etc. Um, I'm describing this as if you know um, how we do this, but uh, in the reports and in prior work, we have techniques that assign media sources to different segments of the political spectrum based upon the observed behavior of partisan Twitter users. So for each media source, uh, we, have, we know where it is on the political spectrum. So what this uh, table shows us is the distribution of linking patterns by media sources. So for example, all of the media sources that have been determined to be on the left um, approximately 60% of their links go to media sources on the center left. 7% um, to media sources on the left, 5% on the right. You can see that center left and center media dominate across the board. Even on, on the right, on the right, so media sources on the right, 75% of their links are two media sources that occupy the center left or the center. One in seven of the links are to other media sources on the right. So for conservative media, um, this is a media ecosystem where the reporting is weighted heavily towards the center and center left, and it's a fairly hostile uh, media environment for them. So for media sources that have taken up the mission of defending the Trump administration for partisan media, we observe in these reports several tactics and strategies that repeat over and over again. 
Um, one is to divert attention to news that is uh, more favorable to your side in the face of bad news. Another is to rebut and reframe negative coverage coming from the center and the center left. Um, another is to decredit, discredit sources of negative information, whether it be individuals or institutions. Don't trust media, don't trust academic institutions, um, et cetera. Um, and there's one overarching frame that kind of serves an umbrella for all of this is reminding audiences that this is political warfare and there's people on our side and people not on our side. Uh, we, um, in doing these reports, one of the things we do is we take several analytical perspectives to understand the patterns of attention coming from different segments of the media ecosystem. One is based upon linking behavior. So in, um, in the following slides, I'm going to show how the linking patterns from media outlets on the left compare to the linking patterns of media outlets on the right. Um, uh, on the uh, uh, we also have another perspective, which is based upon the attention patterns of Twitter users. So we've created three cohorts of Twitter users according to their alignment with different um, candidates, Trump, Biden, and Sanders. What we did is we drew a very large sample of users that retweeted either Trump, Biden, or Sanders at least two times in October 19th. And from those large samples, we chose a sample of 1,000 users for each that we've now tracked over time to see what they pay attention to. So in the following slides, we're going to show how these media attention patterns vary across these different perspectives by um, coding the top 100 stories for each by the topics that are covered. So as I mentioned in March, uh, coverage of the pandemic uh, took over political discourse in the United States. If we start by looking at the top stories by links, we see that this gray bar, which is pandemic coverage, accounts for about 90% of the attention from media sources on the left. We already see a difference between media sources on the left and the right, the attention from media sources on the right is just over 60%. In second place is campaign coverage in purple. So already we see a quantitative difference in the amount of attention being paid to the pandemic in March. When we look at the um, cohorts of partisan users on Twitter, there's also a big difference here. So the Biden and Sanders cohorts pay more attention to the pandemic than the uh, Trump cohort. There's, of course, not only a quantitative difference in these attention patterns, there's also a qualitative uh, difference in, in the cover, in the attention. So the media stories that got the most, most traction on the left both from media sources on the left and their linking patterns 
and in the Biden and Sanders cohorts on Twitter was very uh, critical of the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. So a lot of bad news coming from the center and center left um, directed at the Trump administration in March. The stories that got the coverage amongst, that got the most traction on the right, both media sources linking to things as well as the Trump cohort, um, had a very different pattern of attention here. Um, one of the tactics was to uh, divert attention, fo focus attention on the Democrats instead. Uh, another tactic, of course, is to call the news coming from the center and the center left false reporting. The other thing we see very clearly here is that there is a distinct effort to rebut and reframe um, coverage coming from the left. This uh, this article in Fox News is Fox News providing Trump with an uncritical platform to rebut coverage coming from the left. This story here is a response to this story on um, the Trump administration's efforts to downplay the pandemic. There's this kind of this folksy version of eco chambers where echo chambers prevent bad news from, from uh, entering into their echo chambers. That's just wrong. Um, the conservative media in particular is acutely aware of the coverage that's coming from the outside. And there's a distinct um, pattern of rebutting and reframing that coverage. Um, another thing that's occurring at the same time period is there's almost a cottage industry of people that are out looking for evidence that mainstream media is overselling the extent of the pandemic. So this is people looking for evidence of exaggerated coverage by looking for the lack of activity in parking lots and hospitals. In April, we see a growing divide. Um, the attention from media sources on the left is well over 90% still. Um, on the right, I'm trying to get my mouse to work here. On the right, um, attention to the pandemic is just over 50% now in April. So a big divide between the center and the right. A lot of the uh, um, difference in the attention is coverage of Tara Reid. Um, Similar patterns in the Trump cohorts. So the Biden and Sanders cohort, a little bit less attention to the pandemic than we saw in March. That's been filled by um, attention to other Trump administration stories. Negative coverage, yes, indeed, but less on the pandemic. The Trump cohort, much less um, attention to the pandemic and Instead of the Tara Reid story, they are reopening the debate over the origins of the Russia investigation. Again, um, coverage from the left and the center left in the center, deeply negative coverage of the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. Um, those stories that got the, the most traction on the right are deflecting, diverting um, attention from those, rebutting and reframing the um, coverage that's coming from the center and the center left, and also um, focusing on Tara Reid and the um, 
origins of the Russia investigation. On social media, um, we see that the Trump cohort is particularly eclectic and venturesome in their in their media. So they are um, they're promoting a lot of disinformation, essentially, that the um, pandemic is overblown, that public health authorities are cooking the numbers, that um, there are conspiracies against the Trump administration. One of the things that's very interesting in this is that when we look at the patterns of attention on the left, the Biden and the Sanders cohorts, their attention patterns align very closely with the same patterns that we see with media sources coming from the left. There's a weight towards authoritative sources on the center and the center left. On the right, there's a greater diversity of attention patterns between the Trump cohort and media sources on the right. Um, so the last month we'll look at is May, um, and there is a dramatic turn here. If you look at the attention patterns from media sources on the left, Almost 60% is still focused on the pandemic, though there's a little bit of um, fatigue at work here. The patterns from the right are radically different. There's a three to one ratio of attention to um, stories related to the origin of the Russia investigation compared to the pandemic. They haven't completely moved on from the pandemic, but they have largely moved on. Less than 20% of the attention from the right is now to the pandemic. And this set of stories kind of under the rubric of Obamagate has overtaken attention from the right. That's even more true when you look at the attention patterns amongst the Trump cohort. The Biden and Sanders cohort, still a lot of attention to the pandemic, a lot of attention to um, the Trump administration. Um, there's a notable difference that we need to look more closely into as we pick up the story in June and July, is that the Sanders cohort in particular paid a lot of attention to the killing of George Floyd and the resulting protests out of that, much more so than the Biden cohort. So you can tell there's way more to talk about than we actually have time to uh, to address in, in this time. Again, the qualitative differences are also important. The mainstream media coverage of the Trump administration is deeply negative. The coverage coming from media sources on the right that got the most traction is talking about Obamagate. So they've changed the topic in a marked way. So those are some of the highlights. Um, we see over and over again as we go through this uh, referral to the same topics, that the same tactics and strategies in the partisan media playbook. Um, again, I want to highlight that the partisan framing that comes through this is really an important part of this, and these all work in a complementary way, which is to discredit others. And that um, there are a set of kind of from very specific claims about 
facts and evidence to a more general framing that this is partisan warfare and you should not trust um, sources outside of this media system. Um, I want to turn it back over to Yokai, but leave you with two um, overriding thoughts from this. So um, one is just the strength of partisan framing in this media ecosystems that um, facts are just no match for partisanship. And that's, for me, it's hard to accept. So I always have this optimism that in the end, truth will win out. Um, unfortunately, the evidence suggests that no partisanship wins. If it's facts or partisanship, partisanship wins. Um, the other thing that stands out from this is the key difference between 2016 and 2020 is that in 2016, as we documented in network propaganda, is that um, right-wing media and conservative act activists had a lot of success in setting the agenda across the media ecosystem. Um, First looks at particularly related to impeachment and Hunter Biden and Ukraine conspiracy suggests that um, this is no longer true, at least not to the same extent in 2020, that uh, mainstream media was much more wary of picking up the um, talking point coming from the right. So I'm going to turn it back to you, you Yokai. Thank you uh, so much. I look forward to questions and discussion. Great. Thanks, uh, Rob. Uh, there was a request to uh, uh, come back to the names of the reports. Most generally, you can look for us on the Berkman site under uh, um, uh, election misinformation and uh, uh, the media democracy and public discourse uh, program and all our reports are up there. Um, again, the same amazing team. We've been, we've been holding hands and running together uh, for many months now. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure to work with this whole team. A um, couple of highlights. Uh, the work, the, the overall topic that Rob was describing um, uh, covers about um, uh, three and a half million stories. Around the summer, we decided, we, we saw that uh, mail-in voter fraud disinformation uh, is, has become and is becoming the central propaganda question of the election. And obviously now after the election, uh, that's become uh, even clearer. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we dug into a subset, 55,000 stories from March to uh, uh, the end of August that focused on mail-in voter fraud or ballots or rigged election, uh, about 5 million tweets, 75,000 uh, Facebook posts, trying to understand the shape specifically of this one major strategic uh, focus. And what we identified at the highest level is that Trump was central to this campaign, but not alone. And that this was primarily an elite driven propaganda campaign carried on directly through mass media and social media was secondary as opposed to not. Let me unpack that a little bit. This is a map of in-links, similar to the ones uh, Rob showed you, 
but specifically only among the stories about um, um, mail-in voter fraud. We also created a Trump Twitter uh, outlet just using Trump's handle as the, as the Twitter outlet. And what's very clear here by location and size is that Trump's Twitter handle is the central media source for mail-in voter fraud propaganda. And its location on the map strongly suggests that it is linked to as much, if not more, by mainstream media as by uh, the right. So he's really setting the agenda through his Twitter handle. But as we'll see in a minute, it's not just through his Twitter handle. Uh, when we look at Facebook itself, at public Facebook groups using CrowdTangle, we see a highly bifurcated system with something with, with two large clusters on, on the left and a large central cluster uh, on the right. But when we actually look, something like 90% of these stories, of these posts link to stories outside. And when we look at the news outlets as organized, essentially the network here, the size of the nodes is how often stories from them about mail-in voter fraud were shared by were shared on, on public Facebook pages. Uh, the, um, uh, their location on the map is how often they were shared by the same groups next to each other. Things that come out very powerfully. The New York Post comes to play a major role, and this is something we saw in the overall as well. It's moved over to the right relative to before. It's still shared, as you see from its, pay, from, from its color, it's still shared by less uniquely right-wing users, still more mixture of centrist and left people uh, uh, sharing that tabloid particularly, but it's central and Fox News and Breitbart and real clear politics as well. Uh, today's story in the New York Times actually tells some of the backstory for what we found in the data about real clear politics moving right. Um, here's the, the anchor to understanding what we did. We took essentially all of the open web stories, all of the tweets, and all of the Facebook posts that mentioned some combination of rigged elections associated with mail-in ballots or mail-in voting, and put them on a histogram to see when the stories spiked. And then we went into each and every one of these spikes, and we said, what was the first story on the open web? What was the first tweet? What were the tweets with the most retweets, with the most reach? What were the Facebook pages with the most uh, uh, shares, with the most interactions? What we found consistently is that using Fox News television interviews, using the daily coronavirus briefings, and using his Twitter account, Donald Trump consistently sets the agenda across the media ecosystem. That's one thing. The second thing is that there's a coordinated attack that includes the Republican Party. So the so here's Ronald McDaniel, the, the RNC, the National Republican uh, Congressional uh, um, um, uh, 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 Campaign. There's a consistent coordinated attack by the president as leader, by his campaign staff, and by the major organs of the party against mail-in voter fraud as a source of, uh, of, of uh, election tampering. So that's the critical finding is that this was a elite driven uh, 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 strategy replicated what happens with these and that's and this is essentially what uh, what 
this teaches us. What happens essentially is that when Trump tweets, it doesn't generally circulate around the network and then get to CNN or the Washington Post, the New York Times. He's the president. What he said is outrageous. It directly feeds into the practices of mainstream media so that it becomes news immediately. And so he's using it more like a press release than like a social network dynamic. And we'll go into what that means. Other critical strategies is that this entire framework of actors is trolling the web for stories that provide powerful anecdotes, whether it's a mail carrier in West Virginia, uh, whether it's a report that comes out of a right-wing think tank that overstates uh, uh, how many ballots, mail-in ballots are lost and then gets tweeted uh, by Trump, or whether it's a Patterson, New Jersey local city council election where 800 ballots are thrown out. In each of these cases, what we see is local media report on some anom anomaly. And, and Atlanta, Georgia, Fox affiliate finds two people who got a registration uh, uh, form for their dead dog or dead cat. Uh, that then becomes the story. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, the, uh, 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 the Republican National Committee itself providing another peak and this major peak here with respect to the post. I'm happy to go into any of these later, but I want us to have a lot more time for conversation. So I want to identify at the high level a couple of points. First of all, our standard model of what a social media campaign is suggests that social media dominates. In other words, social media consumers are out there in the world. They encounter Russian trolls, Cambridge Analytica, um, uh, memes, et cetera, and they suddenly change their views and they become social media producers and circulated. The story is anchored in social media, its origin in social media, its circulation is social media. A second model is that mass media producers are still really important, but social media leads and mass media follows. This is the situation where people generate stories on social media, the newspaper reporters are constantly trying to figure out what's going on in social media. They get influenced. They produce stories, which then feed both their mass media consumers and social media consumers who recirculate. What we found actually in the case of mail-in voter fraud is very different. It's a mass media leads and social media secondary model where political and media elites directly produce for mass media and where social media recirculates these mass media uh, products. And when we look at surveys, actually probably most of the content reaches people as mass media rather than as social media consumers. Critically important, all of the various bad actors that so much we've so focused on so much in the last four years, the Russians, the trolls, the Cambridge Analytica, depending on us at least living in a model of mass media uh, 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 of, of social media leads, if not social media dominates. But here we see something very, very different. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things we tried to do was try to understand what, um, uh, what mainstream media were about. And, what, and, and we used text analysis to look for um, stories that were identical, which we flagged essentially as syndication. And we found essentially four groups. One is, is the Associated Press through local newspaper. 
Gannett's USA Today network, local TV using AP or group content like CNN, NPR, and Wicked Local. What's interesting is this, if, if you remember this map, if you take this map and you size the nodes without moving anything, you size the nodes based on how prominent uh, syndicated media are, this is what the map looks like. So when you think of all of the people based on surveys who tell us they watch local news, who tell us they read uh, regional newspapers, this map is almost completely um, um, unavailable for people who only study Twitter or only study CrowdTangle on Facebook. And so how many are these? This is the most recent Pew report on this question of distribution of media. And what you see here is that uh, the analysis always focuses on the large number, almost from one in five Americans use social media. But the truth is news and websites or apps, cable TV, local TV and network TV each are almost as one is larger and the others are almost as large as social media. So that's a massive amount of attention that people declare this is where they get their news. And the question then becomes, how do these players whom no one pays attention to report? And here I think a critical change we saw in mail-in voter is from the beginning of the campaign uh, to the end. At the beginning of the campaign, this is information campaign. This is a May 5th story from the Associated Press. This follows a crazy Trump tweet, don't allow rigged election. A lot of people cheat and he's, and he's um, um, recirculating uh, uh, a uh, think tank story that had already been debunked by May 2nd or 3rd uh, by, uh, by um, um, uh, ProPublica. And yet the way in which the AP at this stage of the campaign was describing it was a bitterly partisan debate unfolding on whether more Americans should cast their vote through the mail, et cetera. So this, we already know this from the research on climate reporting. We saw this balances bias uh, happening early on. However, later in the campaign, as things began to mount up, we saw even the Associated Press change its framing and we saw this in the Times and the AP, and it's not always, but consistently much more. Trump opposes US Postal Service money that would help vote by mail. Trump also claimed a new falsely that Democrats were pushing, et cetera. So explaining the partisan context, sandwiching the falsehood in a truth sandwich to say that it's false, much more active uh, debunking in the process. Uh, uh, and, and this loss of, even the Wall Street Journal, and more recently after the campaign, we even had this phenomenon of Cavuto cutting off McCannany as she was trying to state the lies without basis. Uh, we've seen possibly after the campaign, the Murdoch-owned properties pull back from the central role that they played in disseminating, but there's a real tear between the news side and the opinion side uh, so where do we come to uh, uh, from all of this? Mail-in voter fraud propaganda is elite driven through mainstream media. It's not just Trump. It's not one narcissist with a, with a big ego. It is a partisan strategy designed to prevent and suppress the vote. It is supported on the most highly trusted news media, Sean Hannity on the right, 
by the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, by the, the uh, Senate Majority Leader. What we're seeing is a much more traditional propaganda system where a major party is engaged in false disinformation, combining it with institutional actions to suppress and depress the vote in critical states in order to overcome their basic um, um, electoral limitation. They have not won a popular vote except once since 1988 uh, in order to succeed in controlling retaining power despite minority position. And that basic political economy needs to be central to our understanding rather than just thinking specifically about networked disinformation, particularly if we focus only on uh, social media. Great. Thank you, Rob and Yokai. Uh, just going to take a moment to admonish the folks in the audience. Please, if you have questions, please drop them in the Q&A feature that's at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, but because I'm moderator, I get the prerogative to ask the first question of both uh, Yokai and Rob. So what, does, what do your findings mean for the elite media um, who, within this, this spectrum of, of um, the campaign season, the election season, a lot of focus has been on social media specifically, but what does it mean for the mainstream media and particularly for newsroom patterns or newsroom culture and the professionalization uh, or professional journalists working in this space, covering all the related campaign and extra campaign uh, uh, kinds of information and possible uh, propaganda that you all noted. So thank you, Jasmine. Uh, uh, go ahead, Rob, you were going to come in. No, you start, go ahead. So thank you, Jasmine, for that question. I think that's exactly the right question. Um, perhaps the most depressing conclusion of our book in 2018 was that the only real intervention that could matter and could be done constitutionally is to change patterns of reporting in, main, in the mainstream press. And that's what I tried to do here. And it's very difficult. It turns out to be extremely difficult for um, newsrooms to adapt their behavior. They're used to following the flashy headline. They're used to trying to attract people to read them. They're used to being balanced. It's a much easier to say it's a partisan debate than to say this side is lying, that isn't, and we're not being partisan, we're just telling you the truth. So that's, there, there's a real need for uh, reassessing the role of the editor, for not separating out fact-checking from the main reporting, but actually putting the fact-checking in, uh, in the headline, in the lead, in order to educate the audience from the very start that what you're, just, you're, you're hearing is a lie, it's an intentional propagandist campaign, here are its political uh, necessities. And that needs to happen in local TV. That needs to happen in regional newspapers. That needs to happen in the Associated Press. We somewhat quantified it on mail-in voter fraud. We're going to need to look at it going backward when we read things going forward. But impressionistically, at least since September, it seems to be that that message has sunk in and we have seen a little bit, not even a little bit, a significant shift. Uh, just as, as Rob, maybe he'll talk about the Hunter Biden story, but, but we've seen it also in mail-in 
voting as well, the practice, the, they're beginning to overcome their, their educated, deeply professionally instilled uh, 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 commitment to balance, even if balance is false, and to becoming more aggressive in debunking right as they're telling the story. Uh, I'll pile on that. Uh, first of all, I agree with all of that. It would be a lot easier, I think, if we lived in a symmetric world, the asymmetries in media, just make things very, very awkward. And for researchers, for media, for everybody, it's, um, we can't ignore the asymmetries, but taking them on honestly and openly is problematic as well. Um, I think we see in these studies, we see both the strengths and the limitations of um, elite media. Um, we see the limitations in that it's almost impossible to pierce the armor of loyal partisans. Um, not that we shouldn't try and continue to tell the truth, but I don't think that that's gonna be where we see a big impact. Um, I do think that we've seen um, progress in avoiding the foibles that are being played by um, political operatives. The Hunter Biden example is, I think, key to this. Um, by January, we had seen that mainstream media, the frame that they adopted around the Hunter Biden um, innuendos and rumors and, and conspiracies that were being pushed out was that this was an attempt to smear Joe Biden and that um, we needed to act on that cautiously. That played through until October. Um, we haven't finished looking at the data there, but conservative media was pushing this hard drive story very, very hard. And we will debate for many months in the future whether main, mainstream media did the right thing in pushing this story back and ignoring it. But um, it was clearly a chapter out of the 2016 playbook that they wanted to repeat and mainstream media largely said, no, thank you, we're not playing that game again. Um, I think the one area that um, Yokai's, um, Yokai's discussion points to is that an area that um, I think where we might see the biggest changes is on the margins, not in getting um, very partisan people to change their mind and be more open to alternative things, but is the impact that large media has on independents and moderates. I think if we're gonna see changes in media ecosystems, it's probably gonna happen there on the margin. So there is a very important and key role for elite media moving forward. And so their job is, if anything, more important than it was before. Great, thank you. And, and one more question. What has the loss in local news outlets and local news spaces, but also the concentration of local news, say television stations, meant for this kind of uh, a transmittal of, of disinformation? Um, and as you, as you talked about the um, elite driven nature of this, but what does it mean when there's a lack of different local places that people can go to get news. You want to go, shall I? 
Uh, I'll, I'll throw out a couple ideas. I mean, that's a, that's a huge, huge, big topic. Yasmin and is deserving of more research than has been paid to it. Um, there's a nationalization of politics, which I think is deeply worrying, that um, moves people's importance towards more partisan issues that are harder to grok and harder to understand in an immediate sense. So that's one of the problems. Another problem is that as local newspapers um, disappear, um, there's a void being filled by, by junk news, which is filling out the, the scene there. So that's another problem. And the other problem is that the feedback loops with local news is much stronger. It's very hard to make up lies about the local school committee because people, that's a very lived experience. Um, whereas as things get more complicated and more abstract, it's easier to push disinformation on people. So. Uh, so this also ties to one of the questions in the queue asking about Sinclair and local news, uh, Jasmine. So I think I'll try to combine the two together. Um, to me, the biggest takeaway is that we don't know. Uh, right, there's this massive amount of, of um, really important communications that are happening and we've lost our ability to understand it. There was a generation of media scholars who really understood TV and really looked at TV and didn't know about data science and didn't know about studying in the network. And now there's a decade or 15 years worth of people who've become really, really good at data analysis and looking at quantitative and qualitative work online, but who've lost the taste and training to look at TV. And I think part of what's coming out here is that we as a field need to build that uh, combined muscle again. We need to build new data sets to be able to see what's going on on TV. Occasionally, somebody will come out with that brilliant thing about how Sinclair repeated over and over again the same news coverage. But we actually need to get the ability to do what we're doing online, ingest huge amounts of TV data, and then analyze it both quantitatively and qualitatively. We now do some of this crosswork using our own um, um, uh, eyes, as it were, and ears. Uh, we're better able to do it uh, for, for cable news, much less so for local news. So I think that's just a, it's impossible that it's not important. Part of what we tried to do with the syndication uh, work is to try to exercise those muscles of trying to understand. But to me, it's more, yes, this is absolutely central. We need these. And to just throw in a response to another one of those comments, and we need the same thing in all of these other countries. I don't know that there's been anything. There's an interesting study that Ethan Zuckerman did with uh, our colleagues at Sciences Po on France. There's an interesting version of this that Jonas Kaiser, one of our collaborators, has done on Germany. There's the beginning of working of similar work in other countries. But, but to my taste, the primary lesson, both for the local and for the international, is that we're building a set of techniques that are allowing us to see things differently than what we've seen with techniques from the last decade. And we just need to ramp those off and both focus in on the local and replicate uh, globally. Great. I'm going to go into the Q&A and ask a few questions. So one um, participant asked, 
um, on the asymmetry between the left and the right. The asymmetry makes sense, but have you seen any evolution between 2016 and the 2020 on the left, um, e.g. toward an increasingly polarized and radicalized left or something altogether different? But let me combine that with this other one, which talks about the conservative shift away from Fox towards OANN and Newsmax and from Twitter and Facebook to Parlay. How do you see this affecting the, the media ecosystem? Yeah, so I would say one of the surprising things to me is, is how central the rest of the media ecosystem has been. If anything, we've seen less of a distinctly left ecosphere and more of everybody outside of the Trump sphere just focusing on mainstream media. Now, this may be biased by the fact that we were focused on the general election topic and the COVID topic, rather than, for example, on racial justice, where we might, I would expect if we did, uh, uh, particularly this summer of all summers, we might have seen actually distinct left emerging, and that's a real field. But as, we, as we're looking at this broad population level election topic, the most surprising thing that happened on the left was that it became more mainstream, not less. Uh, and I, I see you nodding, Rob. I take it you agree with me. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I completely agree. And I think one of the explanations for this is that for partisans on the left, you can read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and that will satisfy your need for negative polarization in a big way. You, don't, you need not go any further than the pages of the New York Times to get your fix of why Trump is destroying the world, where on the right, you need to go other places. But I do want to pick up that second question that you mm -hmm. raised, Jasmine, uh, from one of the things that, uh, whew, who knows, Trump TV is on its way. Uh, no, I'm actually not kidding. Um, we're, we know he wants money. We know he needs money. We know he needs attention. We know that OAN, he's already started to, to get angry at Fox for not supporting him, for calling Arizona early. Um, he needs to find a way to monetize this rage uh, because that's that combination of making money and, and getting his ego stroked just drives the man. So we should expect to see a Trump TV. Uh, Fox and the Murdoch family have two equally plausible strategies. One is to try to imagine that there's a center-right audience that they can lean in on Chris Wallace and lean away from Hannity. But part of what we found in our work uh, as we were trying to look at the political economy over the last 40 years is that the outrage industry is very hard to segment. There's this deep, large plurality audience of Christian nationalists who really want their outrage fix. And so it's going to be very hard to find a slice between that and, and something else. Maybe the Wall Street Journal still can because it's got a unique product, but I'm not sure Fox News can, in which case uh, we're going to see on the media ecosystem the same dynamic we saw in the Republican Party, where, it, where, where the center of the party just gets shaved off and the whole uh, center of gravity moves to the right. We saw it in the party. Uh, uh, I, I worry that it's going to be the Chris Wallace's who will be dumped rather than the Sean Hannity's uh, uh, on Fox. And that's where that's going. 
I, I, I think I agree with that. Can I, can I just add to that? So I, I think one of the things that we have seen over the past several years is that this asymmetric system is both stable and resilient. Um, we may see a shift in prominence amongst media sources on the right. That doesn't mean we're going to see a change in tone or function on the right. So. Okay, great. Um, a question from the chat. Uh, Anne Applebaum's new book suggests that it might be interesting to compare your results with similar similar analyses in the UK, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, etc. Do you know of any data of a similar nature from these countries? So that's part of what I was trying to, that was the question I was trying to refer to earlier when I said about these other studies. Uh, we don't have it. Uh, these were the, the studies I mentioned about France and Germany. Certainly uh, different countries are gonna be very different. Uh, India is going to be particularly difficult to study because even where social networks are concerned, it's WhatsApp that's being considered to be the most important. There's also a lot of vernacular TV that's gonna be hard uh, to study. Uh, possibly, possibly Hungary and Turkey will be the next obvious uh, task, but we haven't done it. And, and uh, I don't know of uh, work that tries to use our cross-platform large-scale data and, quant and qualitative work. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard where, where you don't have the collection of, of um, it's hard wherever you're going to see private messaging services playing a large and important role, and that's many places outside of the U.S. It's hard where you don't capture a lot of TV content, uh, as at least you have here for the major networks. Okay. Um, taking a few more questions. So considering that disinformation in mainstream media and social networks are commonly overlapping, would you agree there is an increased difficulty in establishing a causal relationship between the author of false information and real life consequences? And if so, could this scenario complicate mainstream media accountability for disinformation due to the legal safe harbors that are meant for social networks like Section 230? I'm not sure I understand that. Do you, do you understand the question? You okay? I'm, I'm reading the text of it so as to make sure that I respond to it because it's, yeah. it's a complex, complexly structured question. Um, we don't, let's start with the original premise. We have no idea that any online campaign affected any behavior before, that's before we bring in mainstream media. Uh, the evidence just isn't there as a matter of impact. Uh, however, however, uh, the, the data exists. If, if we had a regulatory system that appropriately demanded access to social media data, in a publicly governed data set to which accredited researchers could have access under appropriate legal protections of the kind that healthcare researchers have when they access private health data. To look at specific events, you can study who got exposed to what, what their interactions were before, what their interactions were la later, did they vote, didn't they vote? This is fraught with privacy violation potential. It's a real problem. I'm not saying this is easy, 
but it's possible to do it, which case you can try to look at people who watch the same TV shows, et cetera, and try to control for that. It's not going to be uh, that easy. Um, mainstream accountability for disinformation uh, only doesn't exist, at least in the United States, legally uh, because of the way in which the First Amendment has been very aggressively interpreted. Uh, for good, for bad, you can have an argument about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. We're not going to have mainstream accountability for disinformation if you what you mean is legal accountability. What we could have and what we do have in the mainstream, but not on the right, is accountability for going false by criticism between the, the, the media. That's what we call the reality check dynamic. But that doesn't happen with the mainstream media on the right because they only police each other for identity consistency. They don't police each other at all for falsehood. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Um, what has been, or has your data shown any effects on independence? Um, yeah. So, so this is to me a major lesson and it's actually not our data as much as the survey data when we project it back onto our data. First of all, independence is a really complicated category that almost nobody really understands in surveys properly. Uh, so there are lean Republicans who behave like Republicans and there are lean Democrats who behave like Democrats, but they don't like the identity and they kind of split the difference and it's not clear to anyone how many people there are really in the middle. What came, I think, very clearly to us in the process, particularly of looking at mail-in voter fraud, is that there's a segment that's not so much independent as disconnected from politics just doesn't really want to focus so much on politics. They don't spend that much time on it. Those are the people who are in the balance um, uh, and can affect uh, the, the, at least at the electoral level or at the trust level can affect the overall shape. So they don't actually exist in the crazy propaganda system. They're the ones that are the target and ought to be the target of the corrective work of particularly local television as seems to be the primary uh, uh, primary mechanism of reaching those disconnected or disaffected audiences. And they're very important. But again, as I said, that's a large um, 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 uh, opacity. We just don't know enough about that. And part of what comes out of our research now is that we need to learn. We need to learn who those people are. We need to learn where they get their news. We need to learn what those outlets are doing. We need to build completely new systems to understand those because our current systems blind us to their uh, uh, preferences and to their media diets. Great, thank you, uh, Rob and Yokai. And thank you to all the participants um, in uh, this lunch seminar, luncheon seminar, um, again, please visit the cyber.harvard.edu website where you can find these reports and others if you wanna um, get more information and encounter all the other uh, cool kind of things that are happening at the Berkman Klein Center. Have a great day. And thank you for your uh, uh, moderation and, and insights here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Yoke. Okay.